Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the Britflix.com podcast. It's the Britflix.com podcast. Welcome to the Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today we've got the third of my East End Film Festival previews, and this one is a little closer to home than the others, because this is with John Baker Sr. and John Baker Jr. John Baker Sr. being Mr. Brifflix. So, hello, John and John. Hiya, how you doing? Hi. Good to speak to you. Good to speak to you. Kind of odd to have the uh, to have the website owner on the, on the podcast, but it's because... Now, let me get this right. So, you might want to identify yourself. So, so John Sr., just say hello and uh, explain your role in the movie. Hiya. Yeah, hi, I'm I'm John Cena, and I'm basically the producer of the film. Okay, and, and John, and I'm the uh, director and cinematographer of the film. Okay, so there we go. So people can now hopefully differentiate the voices because they are very different. So we know who's who. And your film is called Life's a Beach, yes. That's yes. Right. Okay, and that's showing at the East End Film Festival when. It's shown on the Sunday the 5th of July at 1.30 at the Genesis E1. The story's about Mungo. It's about a guy that set up house house on a beach after his, his boat had a few other problems and he ended up on a Folkestone beach. And uh, basically the council moved him along and he was then basically further on the beach that was covered by Dover District Council. And But then and basically he built, he built a house on the beach and wanted to get out of the system because he was sick to death, as we all are, of these big bloody corporations ripping us off left, right and centre. So he, he lived out of the system. and uh, But then he had the battle with Network Railway trying to get him off his land and, you know, different people from the, from the you know, the political big guns trying, trying to move him. And uh, he just was inspired people by doing what he'd done and fought a battle until the end. OK, now, look, before we go into more detail about the story... Um... Let's let's just rewind a second. So, John John Junior, you're you're the director of this movie, um, and I had the privilege of working with you on a short film of mine, uh, where you were the camera operator. But what's what was your what's your background as a filmmaker that 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 prepared you for start making this documentary? Well, this is the first feature film that I've worked on myself. Yeah, and um, before that, I, I'd done a media studies at 
when I was in secondary school, it was GCSE. Yeah. And after that, I went to uh, South Kent College, where I done, where I started to film again for three years. Yeah. And then uh, from that, I moved straight on to uh, Gloucestershire University, where I studied film again for another three years. So, so that's about, uh, so all in all, it's about nine years or so of. Uh, what, uh, what was the university course? What did you do? Uh, uh, the actual course was. Um, was it digital film production? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, uh, it was just a film course, really. But was, um, I started the course in 2008. Yeah. And, yeah, September 2008. And uh, I started filming Mungo in 2010. So it's in, in my um, second year, I think it was. Yeah, this, uh, the summer between the uh, second and third year of university. Yeah. So... Uh, so up until then, it's just a just a series of short films I was working on, really, and like short okay. documentaries and YouTube well, stuff, sort of thing. But I think I think I think it sounds sounds to me like you you always had you, you, your ambitions lay with trying to be a filmmaker. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so so where where did life's a, I mean life's a beach didn't start out as I'm going to make life's a beach. You must have started out with I'm going to film Jerry Mungo Francis who is taking up residence on the Folkestone beach. Is that, how did your relationship with him start? Well, I already knew that Mungo was living there and mm-hmm. uh, on the beach. I think, cause I think he got there in 2008. Okay. But, um, but it wasn't until uh, 2010 that I decided to walk down there with a few friends, uh, one Saturday morning. And, uh, it's a, I think it's about a mile and a half to get to it. So it's quite a walk. So when, by the time you get there, you've sort of filled without uh, all the people that don't really want to be there. So you know that who you who you see when you get there mm. is who wants to be there, sort of thing. Okay. So Mongo, obviously knowing that because he's been there a couple of years at this point, he's he's sitting on the front of his like house that he's made himself, and I uh, drinking a cup of tea, and he's sort of like waved over and invited us in. Mm. Uh, me and me and a few friends, and he's uh showing us around his house that he's made. Uh, Shown us his generator, shown us like uh, the internet that he had there, he had a working laptop, the uh, lights that powered off his generator, and, and I, I felt so fascinated by the idea that I asked him straight away if I could do a documentary on it. And I, I don't know if he, uh, I don't know if he thought I was being serious to begin with, but the next week I, I turned up with my camera <laughs> and uh, proved to him that it was that I was serious about making and like, making this documentary on him. And how and how far down the road was he in terms of his sort of conflict with the local authority and the network rail? Was that had um, already I, begun, or did that start as part of the process? Of you, did that start while you were filming him? Yeah, um, when I first got there, Mongo he had already built the house. Yeah, to the extent that that's within the documentary, mm. but the uh, court case stuff wasn't. It, it didn't really exist when I first met him. Um, but what? He'd, he'd been moved down because, uh, he, when he, when his ship did get pushed on the shore, when he first, he had to move down because of folks in council and he moved down to Dover council, uh, which didn't really mind that much. But, uh, that, that was the only hassle he had before I met him. And, uh, I think it was within about three or four months of filming that things, that network growl went over to him and started saying that they need to go off his land. Life's a beach is in, in, in lots of respects, an inspiring story in the sense that you've captured the life of a man who has done what many of us would love to do 
and that's get off the grid. You know, he's he's living a true alternative lifestyle, but also he's completely self-sufficient and uh, and he's, he's he's really doing no damage. In fact, he's 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 a bit of a womble in some sense, isn't he? He's making good use of everything he finds. I mean, it seems that the the home he's built, the generator he's got, you know, he is he is he is he is his own little gum tree, isn't he? You know. Absolutely, and I mean, it became a destination as well because people would walk their dogs or whatever that mile and a half down the beach, yeah. and they'd make them a cup of tea. So it was a reason to go there. And okay. also, women who was walking on their own up there with Mungo there, they felt safe. Okay, you know, there's other reasons as well, like because there's a there's a couple of people that were living up there at the time as well. Yeah, um, and in a, in a lot of situations, uh, there there was a notify whether there's people that walked past or not so you mean like communicate and say oh yeah like a, a couple of people walked this way sort of thing so they knew that if somebody did go missing if somebody didn't walk back on themselves then mm. something might be up because um, in, in a couple of um, situations there, there was a, a few accidents that were yeah. one there like uh, where the ambulances had to come down and uh, get people that were injured out of there and stuff so because it is quite a dangerous area like hence the reason that he had the accident yeah. Um, but let's let's, uh, let's 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 stealth that for a second. Um, you 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 said you sort of you probably took him by surprise by the fact that you turned up very soon after asking him with your camera. Then how did how did you grow his trust to make a, to make a film with him? Because obviously, when people see this movie, they'll see it's a very collaborative piece. You know, it's him inviting you into his life, and it's you capturing. Him, fun him functioning as a happy, healthy human being. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, really. <laughs> uh, it's, it's five years ago now, but I remember um, uh, the, fir the first time I was there, the first time uh, I went there, it was just me and Mongo, mm. and uh, obviously with the camera and stuff, and uh, and uh, I stuck the, I stuck the camera on the tripod and, and started like questioning like, uh, what are you doing here? Uh, do you mean like just starting to get all like the sort of like sort of small talk out of the way to begin with? Yeah. And um, and in the end was uh <laughs> the camera was rolling for about an hour straight, and was uh, in the end it wasn't an interview anymore. It's just a it was just a conversation that was happening. I still got on tape somewhere, but uh, but yeah, it's uh we ended up talking about like science and philosophy and like uh different things really. Uh, and in the end, just really. Became his friends more than anything. You become both best mates, didn't you? Really? Yeah. That's why making the end of the documentary was so hard because you had to turn yourself off from what you was doing, sort of thing. You had to be, become. You just had to finish it, didn't you? And forget that you knew the subject so well. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an important thing for those listening. I mean, uh, as 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 inspiring as the story is of what you where you start, the the end of the documentary is about. The fact that this man passed away while he was still living there, while embroiled in a, a legal dispute over whether he could actually live there or not. Uh, I get the, if I remember rightly, it's sort of a combination of, I think he mentions English heritage were the ones putting network rail under pressure and network rail didn't seem too bothered that he was there, but because of the pressure of English heritage. I mean, as was for the listener as well, actually, it's worth, I mean, the one thing I don't know, and obviously you guys know because you live down in Folkestone, is that how normal is it? That people might, in fact, temporarily live on the beach. Never mind well, permanently. Well, back in the seventies, before like the Channel Tunnel ever existed, 
Yeah. Um, there's a there's a lot of people living down there. And it's, if you were to look on the internet, there are photos of like uh, different people that have lived down there like, over the last few decades and stuff. But since the Channel Tunnel, they um they they created what's known as Sandfire Hope, which is all the um all the soil that they dug out of the sea between England and France to build it. They just they needed to dump it somewhere, so they dumped it between Dover and Folkestone and created a big sort of island thing. Oh, okay. sort of like pokes out. So it's an an artificial sort of landmass. Yeah. Um. And and but since they've done that, not many people have lived on there because a lot of people had to move away because their home was taken away, sort of. Born. So it, so it has happened before, but not. But but not pe- like, pe- people have been living down there though since the 1800s. Yeah, because uh, Lord uh, Radnor. Yeah. But it was as far as we are aware. The Folkestone one was given to the people as common land. Okay. And all the signposts that say you can't camp there, you can't light fires, double yellow lines, it's all just put there because governments and councils think they could just do things and people accept it. But it's illegal. You're allowed to live down there. You're allowed to camp down there. You're allowed to light fires. But, but everything's political about it. Like the fact that there's, there's no bins down there. And the reason there's no bins down there is because if Network Crowd do put bins there, that means that the uh, folks in council get the right to go there. And because they've got to empty the bins, that means that they're allowed down there and, and to claim some of the lands back. Because it's such a nice area, so many people are trying to claim it for themselves. Like I've got a list here that, of the people that, ha- uh, that I've heard have tried to claim it as their land. Okay. And it's a, well, for, uh, I think this the first dispute he had. They, they they said it was Queensland, then it was National Vow, then the White Cliffs uh, White Cliffs Countryside Alliance, then National Heritage, then sort of special special scientific interest, then Folks and Council. So there's quite a lot of people that are trying to claim the land. So this is this is people that that Mungo come up against as, as what during his yeah. stay on the beach. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Mungo thinks it was White Cliffs Country Project that was behind it. Yeah. And and basically, these these, these quangos, or whatever you want to call them, these like so-called societies that are meant to be guarding our, our, our welfare and our his, history and land, land, land mass or whatever. Mm. Yeah, when you look at, um, uh, you know, it was the, uh, what's it called? Summer Solstice. It was Summer Solstice the other day. You know, and Stonehenge is such a fantastic place. Been there thousands of years. People can go up to it and touch it. No, they they take it over. They make you have to go on the back of a tractor to get there if you take your your wife and kids. Hmm. And like a family of four, it costs forty eight pounds to visit. I think it is. And then they change the plan apparently where you've got to go through the gift shops. We think. Yeah. (laughs) And they say they're looking after our heritage. No, they're not. It was there thousands of bloody years before national heritage, English heritage, or whatever they called ever existed. And it ain't going to go anywhere. No, that's true. They just want to turn it in, into like Mungo says, a commodity. So when, when did when did you begin? How long into the process, John, did you notice that there was a narrative evolving that you were going to have to sort of purposely lead or follow? Should I say? Um, I think it was within about three months or so of filming because I started it. I think it was May two thousand and ten. Okay. And by August, he had his first. So was it, is that three months? Yeah, like three months ish. Um, yeah. yeah, there was a. Yeah, there was already that was his first court case, and that was one uh, where to come back and uh, and film it. But um, 
but yeah, the, the, the documentary is uh, is is a re- is a a weird documentary to make to be honest because there was something was happening all the time um, that, that that was changing the the perspective of it because like you said uh, to begin with it's meant to be a, a documentary about an alternative way of life about a man that's that's uh, living against the norm and not being influenced by television and, and the media uh, uh, and, an, and an inspiring figure and then it turned into uh, more of a, a court case and then obviously by the end of the film it's turned into a tragedy yeah so, yeah, uh, yeah it's a horrible a horrible accident that takes yeah, we never knew how it would end but we presumed it would either end with um, him being able to stay there or he'd be a victim the same off in the sunset mm-hmm. we never one minute thought that it would be his death that yeah there was a, there was a lot of end. conversations that was happening uh, towards uh, the end though uh, in sort of like summer 2011 with Mungo about mm. how we wanted to end it because it, we knew it had to come to an ending at some point. Yeah. And uh, Mungo, uh, he was under a lot of stress as well because there's constant ups and downs between whether he's going to win or whether he's going to lose. And um, and when he was losing, obviously, like naturally, you would want to say, right, I'm, this is how I'm going to, this is how I'm going to leave. Uh, and he had ideas about moving down to Spain. He had ideas about. Uh, just saying away, not to anyone. He he had ideas about other places that he wanted to do the same thing at. Uh, Jimmy was uh, was talking about them all, and um, and uh, and the one that it did turn into was a complete shock and one that was not even considered. When when Mungo passed away, um, how much how how many hours of footage did you have at that point? Um. In total, I think it was around about 80 hours. That's, that's an approximate. Okay, so you had 80 hours of a man's life, which included, first off, you know, the, the start off being, here's a, here's a classic British eccentric in every step of the word, but not in, a, not in the way that eccentric is a bad thing, in the sense that he's just different from the norm. Um, yeah. And the way he's chosen to go about his life is something that we should we should look at and go, maybe that's what we should all be doing in some way, shape or form. And then it turned it into the David and Goliath fight, where it's one man with some community support. Obviously, your film include your filming included, um, and the film cover. You know, his family are not against him. His family are all for him, and that's that's a, a wonderful, sort of warm part of what you get from watching the film. And then he passes away. So you've got you've got eighty hours worth of worth of film, and then it's almost like you've been you're at that point you're told, aren't you? Really, as a documentarian. That's your story. Your story's over, as it were. Now you need to make sense of that and tell it in a way that, I guess, is is, is like a, in in honour of him, a memorial to him. Because um, obviously, you know, it, it's it's there forever now, isn't it? So, how did you go about taking those eighty hours and making it into what is what fifty minute feature length documentary? We had what the idea was when we found out about the death is after after the funeral. What I'd done was all with all the footage that I'd got. Um, which was in uh, December of 26, no, no, sorry, November of 26, uh, 2011. Mm. And what I wanted to do was try editing it all um, by the uh, 10th of April, which was Mongo's birthday of the okay. following year. Right. So, uh, but as a, as, as sort of like a, a private screening, really, for like the friends and family uh, and everyone that knew him. And... Yeah, it's it's quite it's quite difficult really because especially um, for that original screening, 
I, I wanted it to be a a film that was for the friends and family as well. So, so I needed to add in more hours, uh, more minutes, sorry, that were necessary mm. uh, to to tell to tell the story to the the people that already did know him. And that was two hours seven minutes, wasn't it? Yes, that was just over two hours. That one. Two okay, okay. So, so you you general, genuinely did a sort of in honour of Mungo. Here's his two hours of the footage I I pulled I, I captured before yeah. Yeah, before he passed away. I mean, I assume you in, included the um, the sort of the the, fun, the funeral end of it as well. Was that? All yeah, right? that was. Um, uh, because a lot of people were there as well, uh, mm. that was one of the main points of the of the original edit as well. I think the uh, sort of the funeral scene within the, the, the original cut was about a half an hour itself. So, what do you think were um, lessons learned from yourself? You know, com- the, a combination of the process you've been through filming, and then the process you went through editing what you'd filmed. What do you think you've learned through those two processes that you'd aim to not repeat again? Can I just say a little thing? I think on the edit, on. originally the two thousand, uh, uh, two thousand, uh, two hours seven minutes edit. Yeah, uh, he was really, really attached to the film. Yeah, definitely. You know, and we we needed somebody that could, who one was a really good documentary editor, mm-hmm. and two personally attached to the film. And I know an editor called Emily Harris, which is uh, she's a, she's a fantastic editor. Okay. Editor. She's, she's worked on some great films, and uh, I worked on on her film that is also at the East End Film Festival called Paragraph. Okay. And as a favour for my working on her film, she edited Last Speech for us, and okay. she done a good job. So she took it down from the two hours to the fifty minutes. Fifty-three minutes, yeah. Fifty-three minutes. Okay. But but saying that that that's obviously the credit for the editing. But what do from when you looking back now on that process, even getting it down to two hours is still is still no mean feat, John. Um, what was it you learned about the way you'd filmed it, and then the job of trying to pull what you'd filmed together? What was it you What did you learn to appreciate about the relationship between the two? Um, <laughs> that's a, that's quite. I know. I saw. Because the reason I ask is obviously documentarian is about film yeah, yeah, yeah. is about film what happens versus if you're making a fictional piece of work there's a there's a direct relationship between what's going to be edited and what's going to be shot you you can set you set the shot up to be exactly what you want it to be for better or for yeah worse. I mean like uh, at the funeral uh, sorry at the uh, the Viking funeral yeah. where they burned burnt the boat up and on the beach and everything that was uh, that was probably I would say uh, definitely the hardest uh, film that I've had to do because and um, and that escalated all the way to the edit really because whereas whereas uh, the, everybody else that that knew him they could mourn and they could uh, they they could understand that he was dead basically mm-hmm. uh, whereas for me it was it felt really hard <laughs> because um, I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't detach myself because even even um, uh, while I'm editing and while I was filming on that final day, yeah, there's no way that I could uh, uh, take it out of my mind really because I was seeing him every day that was I was editing, and uh, 
I see, what saying, I see what you're saying. You, 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 your, your bond with him was, was sort of was such that it was you. You were having to spend time with him long after he passed away because of the nature yeah. of making a documentary about him. You, you, were, yeah. you, you were almost listening to him talk to you as you, you know, and and obviously <laughs> enjoying happy memories of spending time with him at the same time as trying to do yeah. the kind of technical thing, which is make a documentary film. The one thing it wasn't letting him do was mourn, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He sort of switched on all the time. He wasn't able to mourn about his mate dying, basically. One um, one habit that I did pick up during that edit Go on. Um, was uh, every time that I would, every, every interview that I would be editing with Mongo, that he'd be drinking a cup of tea with, for example. Mm-hmm. I'd always go downstairs and make myself a cup of tea and drink it with him <laughs> while I'm editing. <laughs> Which I'd... It, it, I don't know, it felt, it felt right. Because uh, what Mongo's philosophy on tea is that it's a thinking man's drink anyway. He, he always said that tea is a thinking man's drink because you've got, it takes time to make, you can't just, ha- you can't just pour it like a glass of water or, or Pepsi or whatever you want to pour. But, but with a tea, you've got to wait for it to boil. You've got to wait for it to simmer. Then you've got to put the milk into the perfect, uh, concoction. And then you've got your perfect tea and, uh, so I sort of paid tribute to him in my own mind while yeah. I said it in, in that way as well. So I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, <laughs> did when when you start? I mean, I can't imagine it would have been, but but when you started filming him, did you imagine that this would become a feature film, or did you just think you were practicing to film someone? Was your was your ambition always to make a film? Yeah, my ambition uh, from day one was to make a feature film out of it. Okay. I didn't know, I didn't know how good it would be, yeah. but, but Mongo was a, a sort of man anyway that would always encourage and say, "This is this is going to be a good film," yeah. and he and he wanted it. He wanted it to be a good film himself. So I was always trying out new things every day that was filming, and um, to the extent where we it, it didn't work, and it's not in a documentary, but we tried making out of one of his bicycle wheels a. A sort of rig for the camera where oh, we'd okay. get two bicycles with uh, the rope between them and wind one up with the camera on the rope between it and try getting a, a tracking shot of the beach. <laughs> but it didn't work well, but we was always trying to test out new things with each other and stuff and it's good fun. One of, one of the, um, one of the, well, two of his co-stars are, um, are Jack Russell Mum and Jack Russell Puppet. And I thought one of the beautiful things about your documentary is without you telling us, because we're seeing the puppy grow up, you know, so those steps in time, it beautifully tracks the passage of time. The fact that we keep, we start off with a, with a Jack Russell that's sort of resting on your chest and can hardly move because it's a little day old puppy to then seeing it bounding about and digging his own sandals. And I thought it was a really nice took in the, in the edit. Um, Emily certainly did see see that as a as a way of carrying the, the film forward. Right. No, no, because it it, 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 it's 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 a very subtle thing. It's not it's not an obvious thing, but it's it was just it, every now and again because because I think you know feature films struggle with this all the time is that when they try and when they try and cover great tracks of time, they usually just bloody you know paint on a few grey sideburns, don't they, on, on an actor? And you go, oh look, he's got a bit older. But it was just nice to see that 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 Jack Russell puppy growing up. From where we'd seen it, whether it was his puppy or was just visiting family members' puppy, you know, um, that had grown up. But yeah, it was it was a nice touch. Um, what would you no, say? Just... 
Well, where, where else is you, you, this? This isn't its premiere, is it? Not. It's already had a kind of. It's already had what you would call its world premiere, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it is um, premiere back in uh, February at the Glasgow Film uh, Festival. And what was your experience of that? What was your, what was your did you do a Q and A there? Did you did you speak? Yeah, we had a couple of screenings there. We had one Q and A, and it was absolutely fantastic. You know, the reception we got there from the people of Glasgow was absolutely fucking brilliant. And we had such a great time. We were stuck there about five days. Yeah. We had an absolutely brilliant time. And uh, we started to, to be coming home when we got on the train back. But no, it's absolutely brilliant. And then we're showing at the East End Film Festival on the 5th of July. And we're also showing it in Toronto on the Toronto Beaches Film Festival on the 5th of July. Also a Sunday afternoon. The so Toronto the Beaches Festival, did you say? That's right. How fitting is that? <laughs> that's great. Well, that's right. That's why we had to enter that one. You know what I mean? Because it's uh, things related to the sea and that. So we had to uh, we had to enter that that festival. How how has been, how has the process been getting the film into film festivals? What have you been doing to do that? How's that worked? Do you want to uh, give people a little insight into how that? What's the process of getting a film into a film festival? What have you had to do? Well, basically, you, you get a list of all the festivals. That you, you get a list of the, the League 1, the League 2, the League 3, and all, all the festivals. Yeah. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Well, once, once you apply, so you, you, you pick the festivals that you're going to uh, enter first. And this is a long process, you know, it's an 18 month process because, you know, the first year you enter the sort of the, the, the top festivals and they keep knocking you back. And then the second year, well, you know, so it's a rolling 18 month period. And as you get knocked back from others, then the following year you'll apply for others that are not quite up there with the can or the, uh, the Sundance, but they're, they're still really good festivals. Yeah. And then as they knock you back, you go, you go further down the line. Luckily, we got picked up by Glasgow, which is an absolute great festival. Mm. Uh, and that really spurred us on. And since then, you know, we, we've also been picked up by a festival, which is another great festival. Um, but it, it's an expensive process. You know, if you're making a film and you want to enter film festivals and you've got to enter a loads and loads and loads, because it's like a lottery, you're going to need some money. Uh, I mean... I'm not sure what exactly what we spent, but it's it's about fifteen hundred quid put in film festivals, and you know that's a lot of money. Indeed, indeed. I mean, I think I think my understanding is the sort of ironically that the more prestigious ones are tend tend to be the lower end of the submission fees, don't they? Some of them, in fact, are free, aren't they? Whereas the 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 sort of industry of film festivals is, and it's equally as opaque as to how you're successful and how you're not successful. They could charge anything up to. I mean, I've seen as high as sort of sixty, sixty-five dollars for some festivals. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, and obviously the later you apply, the more expensive it is. Indeed, indeed. So yeah, I've So, so is, I mean, in that, in, with, in, with that, in, in, with that in mind, what is there any lessons learnt there that you've got in terms of that eighteen-month rolling time? I mean, would you do the same again, or would you do? Would you approach it differently? I'd do something differently. I'd um, obviously I'd set aside a budget for it. Yeah. Um, but I would uh, n- never apply late. Always apply early. Okay. If you have a late deadline, don't even bother. Um, I mean, most of these big festivals have already, you know, they're selecting the films that they're showing. 
they're going out and cherry picking. Yeah. And, and it's only a few percent of the films that are, you know, people like us that are going to get in. Yeah. So, you know, get in early because if you, if you do it late, then you're wasting lots of money. Now, John Jr., um, what would you say, would you be able to give us today maybe three top tips? To begin with, I'd definitely say go straight in there. And if you've got the idea and you know you've got a, a potential topic to do it on, don't even think about it. Just go straight in and see what it evolves into. Okay. That'd be, that'd be number one. Makes sense. I can't think of any. <laughs> what did, well, think of it this way then. In terms of number, just, I didn't want to put you on the spot, but it's, a three just seemed a good number. But um, think of things that maybe didn't go so well that you could have avoided. That you know that you could have, you know. Did you ever piss him? Did you ever piss him off? For starters, did you? Was there any time when you, your filming was intrusive? Was there any time where you know where you're having to balance the family's need to see him and your need to film him? You know, because because obviously you have to be sensitive to that, and obviously with. With the with once the political thing blew up, you know you 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 were you were no longer just documenting a man's life. You were you were genuinely documenting a story and stuff. And it's sort of it's just I just sort of when you when you when you look back on it, were there some things you were? It's more like I mean, obviously, good diving's good advice is a good way place to start. But yeah. what what else about the process of making it? When you look back, that you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily do again. You could you could tell someone, look, this is this is going to be this is what's going to happen when you make a documentary. I would advise dot dot dot. Obviously, obviously, like uh, what I originally said as well. But um, but I think that also the one one sort of um, uh, thing I look back at and uh, with a documentary and sort of see it as a mistake in my own mind. Cool. I don't know whether I don't know whether it looks like that when you when you watch the final film or anything, but. I was I was very precious with a lot of shots, and uh, and I would spend a lot of time placing the tripods and, and making sure it's a, a, a nice shot. And, uh, I think by doing that, I was I I wasn't getting the the full picture because I was, uh, for example, like getting a really nice shot of a flower or something like next to his house. Or, um, whereas I I should have I should have uh, spent a lot more time. Uh, Getting the shots uh, that were necessary, even if they didn't look that great, because uh, it's a documentary. It's not. I mean, it's not. It's not a film. I need to get like the raw picture of what it was like. Yeah. Um. Oh, so I definitely say uh, get more like Jimmy. Uh, spends more time. Uh, always get, getting. Treat, always treat it as if it's the last day. Yeah, like uh, yeah, I should have, I should have, uh, yeah, like you said. Like, yeah, it's like the same. Kind of treat every day like it's your last. Yeah, like a documentary. Really, you need to cover your tracks, and because afterwards yeah. you're gonna realise you've made loads of mistakes and missed loads of things that were there for the taking, but you just didn't yeah, take exactly. Them. Like, uh, uh, for example, I, I wanted. Uh, was, I was always talking to Mongo about like uh, what could have been done, what, what certain scenes we could plan and stage uh, to give like uh, the impression of uh, the story and stuff. But um, one of them was in his chicken pen. Uh, what he had done is he had he done it so uh, in the morning because he wanted the, those foxes at the wine, so he wanted to make sure that the, the chickens were in the pen at night time. So what he done was uh, after the chickens were, and he shut the door, mm. and he he tied a piece of string to the door, and uh, and wired the string to the inside of his cabin, and 
and done it in such a way so when he's in his bed in the morning he can actually pull that string and it opens up the chicken pen and he doesn't have to go outside and do it himself. <laughs> like, <I> yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but um, but he, he said, oh, yeah, what we've got to do is we've got to stage it. We've got to film me, uh, wake up, pull the string, do this. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great idea, and I should have got it, but, <laughs> uh, but I didn't because, I, do you mean, it's, it's one of them ideas that you think. Uh, so, basically, I would... Uh, in certain situations like this one, I, I had the mentality that I'd, I'd say, right, let's wait till the edit. Mm. And uh, and in the edit, I can fill in all the missing gaps with stage scenes that, that tell the final picture. That, but, happen but like, that happen in all documentaries, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> now, starting with you, John Senior, what was, what's your, I mean... Like I say, it, it, while while it's a, while it's a sad ending, it's 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 a it's a, it's a memory of a, a man who was inspiring. So so there, there's obviously lots of fond memories of him, and uh, certainly the people you talk to and the comments you hear in the documentary affirm all that. But what starting with you, John Senior, what was your, what was your, what's your sort of favourite abiding memory of 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 Mungo? Wow. From from you know from making the film and everything, you know what was what was your or favourite moment, even you know, it's hard to to pick a a, a a special moment. But there was one time we went down there when it was actually the the marriage of uh, what was it, Kate Kate Middleton and uh, oh the royal wedding, yeah, yeah, and he he had a little party down there. And to be honest, by the time we went down there, me there was four of us and a couple of of girls that we know who went down there. Hmm. There was an electrical storm over the channel, right? And there was rain, and he put up this this canopy, and we sat there, and we had a drink, and and it was absolutely magical. It was, it was like our own personal fireworks display, or or lunar display. It was absolutely amazing, and that is a really really great time that I remember there. It was that was a really special time. What about yourself, John Junior? What, what what were your you, you obviously was spent a lot of t- more time sort of with him what would what would be one of your sort of favorite moments of, of making this film with him um one of the, the favorite moments uh, ha- um that i had with him was probably uh <laughs> it, there's there's so many to, to pick and choose but i do remember because he, he loved science and yeah. he had to down on the beach on his laptop and stuff and he followed the uh international space station yeah, and at one point on Twitter, he he worked out that the uh, the International Space Station will come over uh, Folkestone at, at at some time. I think it was at like, Jimmy like eleven o'clock at night or something like that. I can't remember which. But um, but basically, uh, we was all we was all sitting there talking. We was we was all planning on because it was a really nice night as well. Yeah, and we're standing at the front of the house <laughs> and watching it fly over. And we was all talking, we was having a drink and stuff, listening to some music. And uh, Mungo was on his on his Twitter, and then all, all of a sudden, uh, just uh, jump in the conversation. And he was just like, "Quick, the International Space Station's out there! It's time!" And we all just ran outside, and we saw this dot flying over the uh, flying over the horizon from behind us, and going going up towards France, and then uh, spiraling off like with the sort of. Uh, uh, shape of the planet sort of thing, but that was pretty amazing. 
Yeah, no, it sounds it, sounds it. Now, let's one more last time. Remind everybody, when, when can they see Life's a Beach? You can see the Life's a Beach as, part, as uh, part of the East End Film Festival on the 5th of July, which is a Sunday, at the Genesis Cinema in E1, and it's at 1.30. Magic, magic. Now, one question, certainly John Cena knows I'd like to ask everybody, um, is to recommend me a British movie. <laughs> It's hard. It's sure. It's so hard to choose one. Well, I'm talking to Mr. Britflix, so it kind of it should be, shouldn't it? Really, but you know, there's three. There's three films that I would say. Go on. And I'll just I'll just run through them quickly. Go on. Right? Uh, one is Kelly and Victor. Got you. Starred up. Okay. And Piggy. I don't know the last one. Uh, Piggy's it's directed by Kieran Hawkes, and it's got Martin Compton in it. Okay. Neil Meskell, Paul Anderson. Yeah, I, I love Piggy. I mean, I, I love British sort of uh, urban gangster films. Okay. And basically, this is—I've never made mind up on the film actually, the outcome. But it, it's basically it's, it's a guy and his his brother gets murdered, and it's it's the outcome of that. Oh, I'll, check, I'll check it out. Don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. No, no, check it out. I love it. I love it. What about you, John? John Junior? I find it's hard as well. I was thinking about shooting ducks because I do like shooting ducks, but um. But when you, you mentioned uh, the, your favourite British documentary as well, and, and we did watch one the other day called Mr. Somebody, and Mr. Somebody is another documentary in a way uh, similar to Life's a Beach in the, in the aspect that it is about a, a British eccentric oh. who has his own... Uh, Jimmy, he's, he's got his own like uh, weird house that's, um, that, that's <laughs> very customised. <laughs> but... Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I enjoyed that, and it was it was uh, directed by a girl called Michelle Highway, and she's uh, been an artist. Uh, she is a great girl. She check it out. No, I think I mean I think I think one of the things she did really well, and given it's your first feature, you know, you deserve extra pat on the back for that, like. But you know, the the story you tell with Life of Beach is is really heartfelt, and that comes across really strongly. I think you you're it's clear that the subject is happy with you filming him and. Even though I can imagine he was going through some really stressful times once he was sort of him and his hut on the beach versus the government, when it must have been getting really difficult for him. Whereas actually, when you look at the start of the of the documentary, it's sort of a man going, you know, some days I get up, look at the blue sky, and I just think, how could it get any more perfect than this? So clearly, he was a man that didn't ask for much, did he? And and I think you painted a lovely portrait of him. I'm sure. Um, his family must be very grateful, you know, sad, obviously very sad that he, he passed away like he did, but obviously in it, with, with that in mind, the fact that this, this, this film is now testimony to him as such a, such a, such a lovely, warm man. When, when we're doing the, uh, uh, this screen at the Genesis, yeah. we've got uh, a Q&A after that John Julian's going to do, and Billy, his son, who's actually in the film, is going to do it as well. Uh, and he, he, he's seen a little rough cut on our TV, but he's never seen the film in full, okay. uh, so that'd be quite, you know, quite a moving experience for Billy and for us, and also we hope that he actually likes it, you know. Yeah, and also seeing seeing it with an audience as well, which is kind of yeah, that'd be an interesting experience in itself. Well, look, well, good luck with the uh, with the film. It was a, it's been a a weird pleasure to have Mr. Britflix on the Britflix podcast, but uh, but very good all the same. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix. Just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.
Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.